The scripture passage for today comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray once more. Well, Father, we thank you this morning for your many gifts, but right now, God, in particular, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the truth that you speak to us, that you love us enough to desire to be known by us. So Lord, we ask that as we engage with your word this morning, that we would come to a deeper knowledge of you of your goodness, of your care for us, and of the love that you've demonstrated to us in Jesus. And it's in his great name that we pray. Amen. Well, I once heard a comedian quip on a late night show. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Oh my goodness. All right, I think we're good. Okay. So back to that joke. Um, I once heard a comedian quip on a late night show that everything's amazing and nobody's happy. Uh, he was talking about how, he was talking about our proclivity to complain about life's many inconveniences without also taking the time to, to recognize how incredible so many of the things in our lives actually are. Uh, he brought up the example of the airport. Right? People typically complain about the airport, about the long lines, about flights being delayed. And he says that he often, in those circumstances, wants to ask a follow-up question, and then what happened? Did you fly through the air like a bird? Did you experience the, the miracle of human flight? You were sitting in a chair in the sky. That's pretty unbelievable. There is so much in life that we take for granted, that we fail to appreciate, which is part of the reason why we need a holiday like Thanksgiving. Right, to orient us with reality, to help us to engage with the discipline of giving thanks. Now, many studies have shown that this discipline is actually quite beneficial. Uh, cultivating a, quote, attitude of gratitude has been linked to sounder sleep, less anxiety and depression, and kinder behavior towards others, including romantic partners. That's exciting. Uh, Robert Emmons, who's a psychology professor at UC Davis, um, who studies the, quote, science of gratitude. You may not have known that there is a science of gratitude, but there is, in fact, apparently. He says that gratitude leads to a stronger immune system and lower blood pressure, as well as, quote, more joy and pleasure, end quote. Just more joy and pleasure is associated with gratitude. Who doesn't want more joy and pleasure in their lives? So lo and behold, listening to God's command in Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, doing what God says is actually good for us. 
Who would have thought? So this morning, we're going to look together at the discipline of giving thanks by looking at Paul's prayer here in the beginning of the book of Colossians. But I'd like for us to start our our journey into Paul's prayer here by first doing a little bit of background study. So in the first two verses of this letter, we read this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This letter begins, as most letters do, with an introduction. And in the first couple of verses, we learn that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Uh, Nope, not to Timothy, sorry. Paul is writing this letter with Timothy to a church planted by one of his co-laborers in the gospel, a man by the name of Epaphras, who are are introduced to in verse 7. And Paul is writing this letter, we know from other material, from a Roman jail cell in response to a report that he received from Epaphras, describing some of the various issues that this church in Colossae was facing. Now, there was much to commend about this body, uh, this body located in the relatively small and unimportant city of, I've said it three times now, Colossae, uh, a city that was located in the Lycus Valley, about 100 miles east of Ephesus, in the Roman province of Asia, which is in modern-day Turkey. Now, good things were happening in this little church, but the spirit was at work, and their faith was sound. But apparently, someone had come in and started advocating for a philosophy that Paul describes as teaching empty deceit and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So Paul's goal with this letter was to remind his church, remind this church, of the supremacy of Jesus in all things. So then after introducing himself and establishing his authority as an apostle of Jesus by the will of God, he launches into this beautiful thanksgiving for the church. So in verses 3 through 8, we read this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace, of, uh, the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So there's an issue that that Paul is is wanting to address throughout this letter, but instead of like jumping straight there, instead of like kind of scolding this church for the ways in which they're going astray, Paul stops to thank God for for them and for his work in their midst, specifically for the presence of faith, hope, and love in this congregation. I think Paul here is setting such a powerful example for us He's going to command us in verse 12 to give thanks. But before doing that, he demonstrates what that looks like. He sets an example for us to follow. And remember where I said Paul was when he wrote this letter. He is in jail. If he were focused simply on his own circumstances, he might have had a hard time coming up with a reason to give thanks. But he's got a bigger view of life. 
He's got a bigger view of God. And so he looks past his present circumstances and he sees a reason for gratitude. So often when we think to give thanks to God, it's because he's done something specific in our own lives. But here, Paul, who who did not plant this church, who couldn't take credit for any of its successes or anything praiseworthy about them, he stops to thank God for his work, his activity in this unstrategic and insignificant location. He has reason for gratitude. And I think that this is an encouragement for us who maybe struggle with giving thanks. Paul, for when we're first introduced to him in the New Testament, it's not really a guy that, that you would consider like a, a very thankful human. Um, he was bitter. He was enraged. He was murderous. Like this is the man that we're first introduced to in the New Testament. Like, he was pursuing Christians, seeking to kill them. But Jesus appears to him. The Spirit does a work in Paul's heart, and it transforms him from the inside out. And so this man, despite the fact that he is in jail, despite the fact that he has very little things to look at in his own life and say, thank you, God, he's able to do that nonetheless because of the work of the Spirit in his heart. This is what, this is what the Spirit can do in us when we submit to him. So after thanking God for the Colossian church, he goes on to pray for them. And verse 9 begins with a prayer for knowledge. Now typically when we pray for ourselves or others, we pray for physical health, for uh, help in challenges that we're facing at work or with family, finances, other concerns. But notice the first thing that Paul prays for, for this church. He prays that they would grow in their knowledge. In verse 9 we read, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The Apostle Paul is deeply concerned with the knowledge of his people. And we see him pray this prayer throughout the New Testament. So for example, in Philippians 1.9 he prays, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And in Philemon 6, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Ephesians 1, 16 to 17, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. But knowledge isn't simply something that Paul was concerned with. We see this We see this emphasis throughout the Bible. And in fact, in the Old Testament, we read in Psalm 1, 1 and 2, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's not simply knowing something, it's knowing something deeply. It's getting down into it. And we see a very similar thing in Joshua 1, 8. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. As Kent Hughes writes in his commentary, knowledge is foundational to a sound, fruitful Christian life. God puts no premium on ignorance. Now for many, this may seem somewhat obvious, but there are a lot of people who seem to, to hold the view that 
What matters isn't knowing God. What matters is loving him, serving him, doing good in the world. Now, we should love, serve, do good in the world, but we need knowledge in order to know what that means. Uh, a few weeks ago, one of our kids uh, had an upset stomach and ended up making a mess. I will spare you the details. Um, now, <laughs> our whole house has like the fake vinyl wood floor, so they're like spill-proof, bomb-proof, right? 98% of our house is covered in this stuff. Very little of our house has carpet in it, but Harper managed to find just like one of the very small sections of carpet in our house, and that's where the mess happened, of course. Uh, so Katie and I, after this happened, kind of tried to do the divide and conquer. One parent cares for the child, the other cares for the mess. And um, I, I got the mess. Um, and I quickly did a Google search, like, what do I do? Uh, how, do, how do I clean this up? And I found an article that said, baking soda is the key. And I'm like, baking soda it is. So I went downstairs, grabbed baking soda, brought it up, covered the mess in baking soda. Like, now what? Uh, unfortunately, uh, baking soda was step four. <laughs> so there was one through three that I had ignored altogether. And I just made a much worse mess of the original. Right? I had action. I had service, I had a desire to do good, but I did not have knowledge, and that was disastrous. In order to love God, in order to serve him, in order to help other people, we need knowledge of his will, spiritual wisdom and understanding. So friends, I want you to consider for a moment, are you taking steps to gain such knowledge? to familiarize yourself with God and his will. We have unprecedented access to the word of God in so many different forums and mediums. Are you taking advantage of that? Are you filling yourself with knowledge so as to be able to serve him and other people well? Knowledge is extremely important, but it is not an end in itself. Our knowledge has a telos, it has a goal in mind, and that goal, we read on, is to walk in a, in a worthy manner. In verse 10, we, uh, we read that we gain knowledge ultimately, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, knowledge is not meant to be an end in itself. It is meant to produce something in us. John Calvin once asked, why should we become knowledgeable of God's word? And, he, and his answer was this, that we may walk worthy of God. That is, that it may be manifest in our life. Calvin would say that, that knowledge without action, knowledge without life change is meaningless. And throughout the Bible, but particularly in the Old Testament, knowledge and conduct Knowledge and conduct are bound together. To walk is a Jewish metaphor for behaving, for conducting oneself. And the writers of the Hebrew Bible saw an irrevocable connection between knowledge and conduct. Right, from this perspective, a person didn't know something unless he or she did it. So friends, our knowledge 
is meant to lead to action. Our knowledge should mean action. If we don't put our, our knowledge into action, do we really know it? I remember reading a while back something from a, a Christian philosopher named James Smith. Um, he said that uh, over the course of his marriage to his wife, Dina, her values and, and ideology around food changed, and over the course of many years, apparently, his began to as well. Uh, iron sharpens iron. It's a good thing. Um, she became just really convicted about uh, you know, not, not wanting to, to consume too much and, and sustainable practices, uh, healthy agricultural practices as well. And that message was sank in for him and, and began to, to change his own perspective. Uh, but it was ultimately when he started reading what his wife had been saying for several years in the prose of Wendell Berry that he's like, okay, yes, I'm convinced. This is, this is the thing. And he said that for a season, Wendell Berry's anthology, bringing it to the table, was his, quote, take with me book. Um, the book that he would keep with him in case he had like 30 seconds, you know, by himself and he could, he could sit down and, and read a page or two. And he said that he just like, he just absorbed that book. He loved it. He underlined it, highlighted, wrote, uh, wrote amen in, in the margins. And he said that there was one time after writing amen in the margins, he, he paused to reflect on, on the point, a point that was just made. And you know, pausing to reflect forced him to, to look up from his book. And he recognized he's reading Wendell Berry while sitting in the food court of a Costco probably eating like a $1.50 hot dog with his drink. And, and the, the irony just kind of hit him there. It's like, wait, 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 I say that I believe these things, but like it's not actually leading to different practices. Uh, there's nothing minimalistic about, uh, about the way that I shop and consume food. So it begs the question, did all of his knowledge, did all of those convictions really matter? Could they be called true convictions if he's not acting on them? Paul prays that our knowledge would increase, not as an end in itself, but so that our knowledge would bear fruit in every good work. Our knowledge is meant to produce tangible good works that demonstrate the love and care of our great God. Action without knowledge is dangerous. It's disastrous often. But knowledge without action isn't worth a whole lot. But knowledge with action is transformative. You can think of it this way. Uh, have you ever tried learning a new board game or card game? And someone who's very into that board game or card game then like just kind of fire hose, gives you all of the directions and all of the nuances of, of the game, the history of the game. Does that ever happen to you? Well, for me, I can take in about 30 seconds of that before like, my brain just completely shuts down. It's like, I, I, I can't take any, any more of that. But it would be really foolish to sit down and, and receive kind of that fire hose of information and then get up from the table and, and go about my day, right? That would be completely pointless. No, the, the, the reason that you absorb that information is so that you can sit down and play the game. And as you play the game, you find that you come to learn more and more about the game as you're actually doing it. You don't necessarily gain more information in the form of propositions, but you do gain important experiential knowledge. Well, I think the same principle can be applied to our spiritual lives. You can think of prayer as an example. Right? <laughs> you can have all kinds of information about prayer. You can read books on prayer, study ancient prayers, just know just endless things on the topic of prayer. 
But if you don't actually take the time to pray, all of that knowledge doesn't do you much good. And what's amazing about that is, is as, you, as you engage with the discipline, as you, as you apply the knowledge that you, may have, that you may have learned, as you pray the prayers, you find that you increase not only in experience, but also in knowledge. You, you learn through doing. So I want you to think, how is your knowledge of God playing out in everyday life? Does it make a difference? Does your life demonstrate an awareness of who God is? Knowledge is foundational, but it's meant to do a work in us. It's a means to an end, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel and bearing fruit for God. It, according to verse 11, will strengthen us and, and produce endurance and patience. Now, in verse 11, Paul heaps up terms for power and strength to stress that nothing short of God's power at work within us will enable us to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And the outworking of God's power is not in spectacular miracles. It's not necessarily in gifts of healing or prophecy. No, according to this text, the outworking of God's power in our lives is patience and endurance. And I think as we're becoming increasingly impatient, we can probably affirm, yes, it takes the power of God in my heart to make me a patient person. And we would be entirely biblical in affirming that. And our walk ultimately is strengthened with power for endurance and patience. And it shows itself, not just by patience, but through joy and thanksgiving. This is the last thing I want to focus on. In verses 12 to 14, we read, Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Believers who walk worthy of Christ should constantly give thanks to him for the work that he has done. And in these verses, Paul gives us three specific reasons why we should do so. The first is that because, in verse 12, he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God, out of sheer grace, has qualified us to receive an inheritance. That's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? Now, what does one do to make oneself worthy of an inheritance? Getting birthed, right? You don't do anything to make yourself worthy of, of, of an inheritance. You, you are born into a family. Well, Christians are born again by a work of the Holy Spirit. And this isn't something that we get to claim responsibility for. No, we don't make ourselves worthy of such a gift. It's solely a work of his amazing grace. And for that, we give thanks. So we give thanks first because he has given us an inheritance. Second, because according to verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, this word uh, transferred is used in other places to describe a mighty king picking up a whole population and transferring it to a different realm. And friends, in the gospel, that has been accomplished. 
all believers have been deported into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are in the kingdom of God. We, we get to have dual citizenship, which in light of however you're feeling about the last couple of weeks is a really good thing for us to remember. We get to, we have the privilege of voting our consciences, of participating in a democratic system, but where is our hope? Our hope is not in any, any earthly politician. Our hope is in the fact that we have been transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God. That Jesus is our King and He will make everything right. So we give thanks for our inheritance. We give thanks for our heavenly citizenship. And third, according to verse 14, we give thanks because God has provided redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this may be the ultimate reason for us to give thanks. The word redemption in this context connotes freedom from slavery. It was, the, it was done through the payment of a price. And this is exactly what Jesus said that he came to do. In Mark 10, 45, we read, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus paid the price for our redemption with his own life. He lived the life that we constantly fail to live. And he gives his righteousness to us as a free gift of grace. But he also takes on the penalty that our sin deserves. And you know what that means? It means that a little bit later on in, in Colossians 1, we read, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What an amazing reason to give thanks. I think it's really easy for us to recall the different ways in which we have fallen short, the ways in which we fail, the ways in which we are not holy and blameless. But the gospel hope, the gospel promise is that Jesus himself will present us holy and blameless and above reproach. That, friends, is reason to give thanks. Now, I remember reading, um, apparently in the late, or in the, in the 1800s, Northwestern University in Chicago had a, a life-saving team. That's what they called themselves, were the life-saving team. I think it was like a, a rescue team uh, that assisted passengers on Lake Michigan uh, who, were in, who found themselves in, in dire situations. Well, apparently in September, on September 8th in 1860, there was a vessel named Lady Elgin that foundered near the campus, and a ministry student, go ministry students, uh, a ministry student named Edward Spencer personally rescued 17 people. 17 people. Well, unfortunately, in the process of rescuing these 17 people, uh, Elgin, that's, that's not that person, um, that's the boat, uh, his name was Edward Spencer, excuse me. Uh, apparently, in the process of trying to rescue these people, he suffered some severe health complications, and he never recovered. Uh, he ended up having to quit school within a couple of months, and then within a couple of years of that time, uh, he died. And it was noted 
that despite having saved 17 people, not a single one of them thanked him. That doesn't sit right, does it? Right, that feels unjust. Well, friends, so is a failure to give thanks to God who has qualified us to share in his inheritance, delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his Son and redeemed us from our sins. So think, have you given thanks recently? So this week, as we prepare for the Thanksgiving holiday, let us remember the practice of giving thanks let us remember that it's not just an afterthought in the Christian life. No, it is foundational. As John Calvin wrote, the chief sacrifice which God requires at men's hands is that they should acknowledge his benefits and be thankful to him for them. So take some time this week to take stock, to acknowledge God's many benefits in your life, to reflect on the goodness and loving kindness of God who saved us, not because of our own righteousness, but because of his mercy. Take some time to sit and wonder at the gift that every single day truly is. The author N.D. Wilson gives a helpful expression to this in his book, Death by Living, when he writes, As the earth screams through space, balanced exactly on the edge of everyone burning alive, and everyone freezing solid, as we shriek through deadly obstacle courses of meteor showers and find them picturesque, as the nearest fiery star vomits eruptions hundreds of times bigger than our wee planet, giving chipper local weathermen northern lights to chatter about, as a giant reflective rock glides around us, slopping the seas and never falls down, and as we ride in our machines, darting past fools and drunks and texting teenagers, how many times do we thank God? Every single day gives us ample reason to give thanks. Amen? Amen. So let's do so. Let's do so this week and every week with joy. Let's pray. Father, this morning, once again, we thank you for your goodness and loving kindness. We thank you for the incredible truth that you have given us, an inheritance that is imperishable, that you are keeping in heaven for us. Father, we thank you for our heavenly citizenship that gives us hope beyond this world, hope beyond our present circumstances. Father, we thank you for the redemption purchased for us by Jesus. And Lord, that's just the tip of the iceberg. You have given us so much to be thankful for. So God, by your Spirit, enable us to, to, to be thankful. Cultivate within our hearts a spirit of gratitude, a spirit that longs to know you more deeply, more truly, a spirit that sees your goodness all around us. Father, help us to see life as the gift that it truly is. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.